Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, July 1st, and yes, it is already July, marks our 156th program. Today's featured Actus solution are the Actus Clinical Documentation Integrity Boot Camps. Right now, you can get access to our best-in-class CDI boot camps in a convenient, practical online format for 50% off the listed price. We've listed some of them there. We recommend you check out all of our various boot camp types online. Um, that's at hcmarketplace.com and use the code CDI online when checking out that will automatically populate your discount. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Listener Mailbag. <laughs> Love that, that one just rolls off the tongue, but today's show is based around some recent questions we've received from listeners, as, as our regular listeners probably know, I ask for questions at the end of every program. These frequently uh, are the topic of programs that we have. And sometimes, as with today, we're going to be just hitting a couple of coding and clinical questions that have come in that we thought we could bundle together and, and make an interesting show for you. So I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Don Valdez. Don is a clinical documentation integrity education specialist for us here at Actus and HC Pro. She serves as a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps, uh, as well as a subject matter expert. Just briefly, Dawn has more than uh, 20 years experience in the healthcare industry, including ICU nursing, legal nurse consulting, and was a nurse, uh, nurse manager for a large third-party administrator for which she initiated a nurse audit program. We're going to be putting some of her prior experience and expertise to the task today with a couple of uh, difficult questions. So thanks for joining, Dawn. You're welcome. Good to be here. All right. And I'd also like to introduce uh, today's special guest, uh, Erica Reamer. Erica has been a, a past guest on the show, and I'm very pleased to have her back. She is the president of Erica Reamer MD, Inc. in Beachwood, Ohio. She was a practicing emergency physician for 25 years, has extensive coding, CDI, and ICD-10 expertise. Prior to consulting, she was a physician advisor at a large multi-hospital system for four years. You've probably seen her name out and about. She's written numerous articles, serves as the co-host of Talk 10 Tuesdays, a weekly podcast, member of our Actus Advisory Board, serves on the American College of Physician Advisors Board of Directors, keeps very busy, and we're, we're pleased to have her on as well. So welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, and hello, everybody. All right. Erica was just saying she had an updated photo that has her face mask, and uh, I'm, darn, I wish I had asked her for that in advance because we are, of course, now seeing a, a big surge in cases, and we, we do believe strongly in, in masking up, and that would have been a nice message today, but maybe, Erica, you can send it to me after the show. We'll post it somewhere. <laughs> Will do. All right. All right, we're going to start with a poll question, as we always do with, with, uh, with the program. So today we're asking you, what is your most challenging diagnosis to clarify in the documentation? We realize there could be many, but we sort of put a few we think you might lean towards. We've got sepsis, 
um, severity or type of heart failure, malnutrition, acute respiratory failure, or other. And please do send in your other. I'm going to try to maybe work a few of those in uh, on the show today. So again, if you had to pick one, what is your most challenging diagnosis to clarify in the documentation with your providers? Would it be sepsis, severity, or type of heart failure? By the way, we're going to hit these first two in, in the show. Uh, malnutrition, acute respiratory failure, or other? I'm only allowed five options with this poll. I might have thrown COVID-19 in there. And we're also going to be hitting that topic today a little bit as well. So we've got three questions in store. All right, I'm showing about 75% of our audience has voted. So I'm going to go ahead and close this out. And of course, we will come back to these results in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, Erica Reamer is our special guest today, today joining us with uh, with Don, of course. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of the, the Actus podcast. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got um, some questions that were sent in by some listeners. And you know, I, I would just say to our listeners, I don't know if we'll have time to take additional questions from the mailbag today uh, through the chat. But if you would like to send a question, please do. If we can work it in, we will. If we can't, I will take a look at those. I always look at the show transcript, and that might be for a, a good question for a future episode of the podcast. So, so send those in. But let's let's go ahead and, and dive into the question. Uh, first question, um, and this is a this is a lengthy one. Actually, our first two questions are fairly lengthy, so bear with me, folks, as I kind of read through these and abbreviate a little bit. This one says, we have run into an issue with the term septicemia. Our facility has adopted a system-wide definition of sepsis, sepsis 3, and we're having success with educating uh, this with most providers. However, our ID providers like to use the term septicemia, which codes to sepsis A41.9. This is somewhat of a conundrum when ID providers use this term when the attending hospitalists are saying, no sepsis and or just bacteremia, and the patient's not meeting our system-wide sepsis definition. We've asked ourselves the following questions. How can we report a sepsis code when the provider states there is no sepsis and they don't meet criteria? On the other hand, how can we omit a diagnosis that a provider has clearly stated and defended? Our physician advisors involved does not think the ID docs will or should have to change their terminology since septicemia is different than sepsis and bacteremia. We found this puts both our CDI and coding teams in a difficult situation. One possibility it came up with was to query the attending in regards to conflicting information. The query would include that the attending is stating bacteremia and or no sepsis and clinical indicators, which will suggest no sepsis, ID provider stating septicemia, you know, give options that include pneumonia or whatever infection they have, pneumonia with sepsis, other, please specify. Um, that being said, we wanted to seek out additional advice or a definitive answer. And to sum this up, in short, they say the question is how to appropriately code and or query in regards to the stated term of septicemia, recognizing that that diagnosis which codes to sepsis A41.9 is different than sepsis and bacteremia when the patient's not meeting criteria for sepsis and or the attending is in fact stating no sepsis. 
So a long question there, uh, but maybe Erica, I'll start by turning this over to you and, and have you kind of work through this with our audience. Well, Brian, this is a long multi-part question and my answer is going to be somewhat longish as well. Um, the first thing I have to point out for newbies uh, is that we caused this problem. In ICD-9, we trained our ID and, and uh, internal medicine doctors to use the word septicemia. So as a physician advisor, I used to have my providers raise their hand if they had been bacteremic today. And then I would tease them about not brushing their teeth if they didn't raise their hand to try to teach them the distinction between bacteremia and septicemia. The reality is that we rarely take care of asymptomatic bacteremia in the hospital. We, we usually get blood cultures for a reason. And we wanted documentation of septicemia because that coded to sepsis and that seemed like it was the appropriate DRG. So when sepsis 3 came around, I spoke personally, I actually called him up uh, with Dr. Deutschman, who was one of the authors of sepsis 3, and he actually confirmed that bacteremia without organ, acute organ dysfunction is not included in the definition of sepsis in sepsis 3. So my first suggestion is to pour through the record with a fine-tooth comb to make sure there is no organ dysfunction and that this really isn't sepsis. So otherwise, we're left with a conundrum. So the patient is sick with a localized infection with bacteremia, and we're treating it with the same fervor as sepsis, but it isn't sepsis. If the patient is being admitted because they have bacteremia, then that should be the principal diagnosis, even though it is an R symptom code and it's sort of frowned upon. For instance, take a patient with a urinary tract infection who is notified that their blood cultures were positive and instructed to return to the emergency department. As a clinician, my documentation would read bacteremia rule out sepsis due to urinary tract infection. If the blood cultures had been negative, they never would have been called back. I would make it clear that I have serious concerns about the bacteremia. I'm concerned that this bacteremic patient is at risk and I would justify my medical necessity for admission. If bacteremia ends up being the principal diagnosis, it actually groups in the sepsis DRG set. The issue is that the word septicemia seemed to distinguish symptomatic bacteremia from brushing your teeth asymptomatic bacteremia. But most folks feel this word is antiquated, similar to using the expression severe sepsis, when that really isn't a thing anymore either. So, Brian, if you want to just put up my, um, my uh, slide for a second. Absolutely. So this is how I try teaching providers to document sepsis. Um, and I suggest that people can make a macro. So what they do is, is it, 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 the, the macro is at the bottom, and they say sepsis due to. And here they should document the infection that's causing the sepsis, which could be bacteremia, with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by and here, they should indicate what the acute organ dysfunctions that are indicating sepsis to them are. And this does two things. First, it validates that there is sepsis, life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated host response to infection. And secondly, it does give the coder permission to use R65.2 um, code for severe sepsis without making them say severe sepsis. 
But in terms of the septicemia, you may need to do some educating before you do your clinical validation query and resolve that conflicting documentation. They need to understand that septicemia without organ dysfunction is bacteremia, and that septicemia with organ dysfunction is sepsis. So I say get a handful of sardines to toss to them and train them correctly, and then do your clinical validation query. Um, <laughs> that's, what I've, that's what I've got for you, Brian. I like the sardines analogy. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. I appreciate that. Dawn, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that answer. No. Before we move um, on to our next The only thing that jumped out at me was when the questioner talked about uh, sepsis 3 and just remember on denials, if it's Medicare, they still recognize sepsis 2. So there may be some adjustments with appeals or how you respond to denials, but that's basically it. All right. Thanks, Don, and thanks, Erica. Let's uh, let's address our next question. Then again, we got three of them. We're hoping to get through today. And this next one is also long, and also multi-part. But we're going to do our best because people aren't going to send us easy questions on this program. It's just not how how, how our listeners roll. Um, so this one reads: Could you please discuss uh, flash or acute pulmonary edema, acute on chronic heart failure, diastolic or systolic or other? Specifically, under what circumstances and when is it appropriate to code both? For example, when is it appropriate to query for both as flash or acute pulmonary edema unrelated to acute chronic heart failure? This question goes on to read, another topic of discussion is right heart failure and its relationship to pulmonary hypertension instead of diastolic heart failures. Some possibilities they list our established diagnosis of heart failure and methamphetamine intoxication, established diagnosis of heart failure and smoke inhalation, or this is a tough word, carbo, <laughs> carboxyhemoglobinemia. Thank you for rescuing me there, <laughs> mm -hmm. hanging out on a, on a limb. Um, or established diagnosis of heart failure and what other conditions? So we got a couple questions sandwiched here together that that uh, Dawn is going to attempt to start for us. I'll turn it over to you. Okay. All right. Thank you, Brian. So let's start with the first question. They're talking about congestive heart failure with pulmonary edema. Then the second part of that question talks about acute pulmonary edema from non congestive heart failure related reasons. So the etiologies are actually divided into two categories when it comes to acute pulmonary edema. So it's either going to be a cardiogenic etiology or a non-cardiogenic etiology. So to answer the first part of the question, whenever there's an acute episode of CHF going on in combination with an acute episode of pulmonary edema, because those organs are interrelated, the acute pulmonary edema is thought of as to be integral or inherent to that CHF, and it should not be separately coded. Now, the question is, when is it appropriate to query? The only time that I could think of that I would query as a CDI for that scenario is to clarify what the etiology is if it wasn't clear in the documentation. <clears throat> Excuse me, as long as it's cardiogenic related, then that acute pulmonary edema is not going to be coded. So the etiology is what needs to be clear with that. Now, the bigger question is, what do we do with a non-cardiogenic etiology? 
etiology. And this is where you're probably going to see more opportunities to query in these situations. So you need a couple of things when you have a non-cardiogenic um, etiology. Of course, you need the diagnosis to be documented. You need the acuity. And we can't use FLASH because there is no ICD-10 code. So if they're only documenting FLASH pulmonary edema, then you may want to clarify that for acute. And then you want to make sure that this is a clinically valid diagnosis, which is true of everything that we query on, right? It's got to be able to meet the UHDDS definitions in order to be coded. So you want to make sure it's validated. And you also want to make sure that etiology is non-cardiogenic. So in essence, a few ex I'm just going to put out a few examples here. I'm sure there's many more. But anything that's going to raise the uh, pulmonary arterial pressures inside those lungs, such as a pulmonary embolism, um, outside of heart failure being the number one cause for acute pulmonary edema, ARDS is a close runner for a second, especially since the onset of COVID, since we're seeing so much of the ARDS uh, sequela. And then, of course, you could get that with a, anything that's going to produce the inflammatory response. So you've got two things going on with pulmonary edema that I'll talk about briefly here. So we've got inflammation, and then we also have the capillaries of the alveolar. So the alveolar is where the gas exchange happens. The membrane of those gets really weak and the fluid, the interstitial fluid, leaks into that and it impairs gas exchange. So anything that causes that inflammatory, you may have heard me talk um, on another show about cytokine storms, anything that is going to precipitate that sequela is likely to be an underlying etiology for acute pulmonary edema when it's non-cardiogenic. So sepsis is in there. Um, other reasons could be poisoning. Um, you can have it from the toxins, the gases, the smoke inhalations. You can also go the other route with medications or illicit drugs like an overdose, especially opiates. I remember seeing a lot of these with um, acute pulmonary edema in the ICU. Um, the other thing that you can see that's not as common, but I, I actually had this when I was hiking in the Andes in Peru, high altitude can be a reason where I grew up at sea level, I go into a very high altitude, I'm doing strenuous exercise, and that change in pressure created a flash pulmonary edema. Uh, sometimes they abbreviate that with HAPE for high altitude pulmonary edema so that it could be written that way when it does happen. And then another cause would be from a neuro-related, so neurogenic pulmonary edema. Typically, these are going to be your sick patients, um, traumatic brain injury. They may have some um, sequelas with maybe some aneurysm repairs, rebleeds, vasospasms. They get this thing called a neurogenic storm, comes on suddenly. Pulmonary edema can be part of that, or it could happen without the storm. Um, so watch your TBI patients. Uh, the other thing is blood transfusions. There's a term called trolley uh, transfusion-related acute lung injury, where typically you're going to start seeing the respiratory signs and symptoms. You know how we have to check vital signs often when we're giving a transfusion uh, clinically. So you're going to be looking at those records to look for respiratory distress. Typically, you're going to start seeing that shortness of breath and those complaints. Um, no longer than six hours. So there's a window there where it's very common to see that. And then unfortunately, we do sometimes put people in a pulmonary edema state with medical treatment.
I know I've certainly been present in some of those cases where one case was a severe necrotic pancreatitis case. Uh, she was in the ICU, she was getting high, high fluid volumes continuously, like I'm talking 150, 200 cc's an hour. You know, of course that makes everybody a little nervous in the ICU because we're anticipating putting them into ARDS, but they can go into acute pulmonary edema and then progress onto ARDS, um, which did happen to this patient. And then the other, uh, place that I've seen this commonly happen is in the severe sepsis sequela when those pressors, uh, you need multiple vasopressors, a lot of fluids going in with all the drips with a critically unstable patient, a lot of times with all that fluid going in, you could see it there as well. Now, I've talked about the coding, so we can't have the flash pulmonary edema. We do need the acuity. People can have chronic, but we're really focused on the acute here. And then, of course, in the validation phase, I'm just going to briefly just throw out some things. The physical exam for non really going to depend on the etiology, right? So for an ARD scenario, you know, we talk about the bilateral infiltrates that's kind of dominant with that diagnosis, although you can see that with other things. Um, typically with an ARDS case, they're going to have some form of ventilation all the way from CPAP, BiPAP to intubation. Usually you're going to see um, the positive end expiratory pressure called PEEP being applied. You might see some different positioning with them. The doctors will definitely be talking about that sequela. Um, the other thing is with the physical exam, depending on what's going on, you may not see that fluid overload, peripheral edema, positive JVD. It may not show up on chest x-ray. Again, it's going to really depend on your etiology. So follow your chest x-rays. There is a phenomena with non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema on x-ray, and I've seen it twice in my bedside career. And it really does look like, they describe it as bat wings. And it's, the ones that I saw were not just one bat wing, it was like a lot of little ones patchy on both lobes all over the place. So if you see any descriptions in the radiology report, that's a little unusual. Um, of course, all radiology reports should be included on these queries for pulmonary edema. So, you know, that is a clue as well. And then lastly, if they're in the ICU and they have a swan GANS, they may be doing wedge pressures, which is measuring the pressure in the pulmonary trunk. And those typically in a non-cardiogenic cause uh, are going to be normal. So you're going to have all these signs that are not related to the overt cardiogenic scenario of that fluid overload. Um, you could have a component of that depending on the varying degree and what's going on and what that cause is. So hopefully that'll help with um, the pulmonary edema. Now, the second part of this question, I kind of had to guess here. Um, so if I'm not getting it right and the listener is in the audience, just let Brian know if you have any outstanding questions with this one. But it reads, in regards to the second question, another point of discussion is right heart failure and its relationship to pulmonary hypertension instead of that diastolic heart failure. 
I'll briefly say diastolic heart failure and systolic heart failure are actually terms that are um, talking about the left ventricle. It's the diastole and the systole and the cardiac cycle. When you're talking about right-sided heart failure, this can get a little convoluted because left-sided heart failure can back up and eventually cause that sequela in the right side as well. But you can also have it from pulmonary etiologies, which is where I think the listener, the questioner was going with this because they mentioned the relationship to pulmonary hypertension. And then their third example, you know, they gave the methamphetamines, they gave the carboxyhemoglobinemia and the smoke inhalation and all that stuff. But their third example was established diagnosis of heart failure and what other conditions. So I decided I was gonna talk about that briefly. So there's two processes, again, for that right-sided heart failure. The most common is the left-sided heart failure, turns into the right as well, but the other one is gonna be that uh, pulmonary etiology. So you've got an umbrella term of core pulmonal, which is pulmonary heart disease. That's an umbrella term encompassing many, many disorders. You've got obstructive lung disorders. You've, that's your COPDers, which we see most often, right? So um, an exacerbation, something superimposed on top of that COPD, like an infection, could create that pulmonary edema. And then also that restrictive lung disorder, which are your interstitial lung disorders that cause that um, restriction. Those are gonna be the scarring, the sarcoidosis, where they, they lose their elasticity, the lungs do, and it's very stiff. So there's a stiffening and there's a scar tissue issue. Pulmonary fibrosis are another one. Cystic fibrosis, those patients are living a lot longer these days. That's another one. And then you have another category which um, generally will demonstrate pulmonary issues eventually. Those are your autoimmune diseases. So look for your lupus, your scleroderma, your systemic sclerosis, those types of things. Um, anything that's going to increase that pulmonary arterial hypertension. And of course, you've got your HIV, your chronic liver diseases, and your malignancies. So I hope that I have covered what the, list, what the questioner was asking. And again, if there's anything else related that I haven't covered that you would like to know, just let Brian know. Thank you very much, Don. Wow, that was great. Um, that was a multi-part question, um, and we hope that got it covered. Uh, could have been a mini course in and of itself, but I know. Hey, hey Brian, I have one curious. really quick thing to say. Absolutely. Um, just one of the things I would suggest that people do is get some more sardines out and reward their doctors for giving you <laughs> linkage. Yes. So non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema due to methamphetamine overdose will make your life much easier. Acute pulmonary edema in acute exacerbation of systolic heart failure. Train them to give you linkage. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. I was just gonna add, just be, take caution while hiking in the Andes, because I know, Don, you use mm -hmm. that as one of your examples. All right, um, Erica, we, we did have a question on COVID-19. Is this, and we're near the top of the hour. We can go a couple minutes over. I don't know if you, we, we can hold this unless there's something you really wanted to to talk about with our audience. Um, well, I'd love to talk about it, but why don't we just have me come back a different time and we right. can do it then. That sounds good. So we're near the top of the uh, hour, folks, but I'm just gonna do a couple quick things. I, I do wanna share our poll results because I'm sure you're all interested to know what others are struggling with here. Again, we asked everyone 
what their most challenging diagnosis was to clarify in the documentation and probably not a surprise and it let off our show today was is sepsis at 38 percent although close behind it is acute respiratory failure at 32 percent followed by malnutrition at 16 percent um, severity and type of heart failure fourth at nine percent and then we have other at five percent so I'll just ask Don or Eric if you have any comments on that. And while you are, I'm going to just go back in and take a look at maybe what some of our other responses were here. Um, well, uh, this is Erica, and I would say that it still surprises me that people are having issues with sepsis. Um, uh, in full disclosure, I uh, I believe that sepsis is I believe sepsis three is sepsis. And Surviving Sepsis Campaign came out shortly after Sepsis 3 came out, and they changed their definition as well. So anyone who is using just SIRS, so the systemic inflammatory response of tachycardia, tachypnea, elevated um, temperature or hypothermia, and abnormal white count, if those are your sole reason for diagnosing sepsis, you should take another look at it. That is not the definition of sepsis. And sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated host response to um, infection. And if you are having trouble with your COVID-19 patients and trying to figure out if all of them are septic, that's your reason. Because if all you're looking at is tachycardia, tachypnea, and fever, all of your admitted COVID-19 patients meet your definition of sepsis. So that's why you need to look for organ, acute organ dysfunction. Mm. I second that. And the other thing is validate these cases as you're going through the clinical indicators, because I've seen a lot of CDIs where they're so used to picking out the abnormal indicators, they're flying right over that lactic acidosis that's 0.50, you know. So look at your all levels of your clinical indicators, not just the abnormals, because that's going to tell you when you need to validate that diagnosis to rule it out when it's over-documented. All right, great stuff. Just a couple other responses we received from our audience during the show from the other was uh, bacteremia and or central line infections, hepatic disease and etiology. Um, I have trouble with providers documenting diagnoses like respiratory failure and sepsis and aren't clinically supported. They also don't want to add any clarification. Um, another one is anything with due to including COVID-19 and HIV. For HIV, is it asymptomatic HIV infection or HIV positive only, or is it HIV disease and AIDS? MDs use many terms interchangeably, often need queries that aren't ever placed. Um, so some other interesting responses there. All right. Well, work of a CDI is never done, I guess. So uh, that, that does take us to the top of the hour, folks. We're I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, and wrap things up here. Again, I wanted to thank both Erica and Don for coming on today and really diving deep into some clinical issues with some common diagnoses. So keep those questions coming. If your answer, if your question was addressed on today's show, and as Don mentioned, you did have something additional you wanted to follow up on, uh, please go ahead and send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. And those could be the basis of a future show.
so again um we're going to be back here again in two weeks back on cadence for our next show which is on cdi and quality reporting we're going to have a couple folks doing a great job with um, getting their quality scores up in their own organization and sort of what criteria they're using and some of the work they're doing we hope you can join us for that as a reminder you can listen to the show recordings anytime on our website they are always uh, we record every program we host them there you can also go on uh, via your favorite podcast app apple podcast google play spotify and check us out um, on the go on your phone so that will do it for today's program again thank you don thank you erica for everyone else we'll see you back here again in two weeks thank Th you everyone yeah take care now happy fourth <laughs>